Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity and the chance to meet together. What a wonderful privilege it is, even in this digital space, to meet together, to open the word for a little bit, um, to study and, and to try to identify and find ourselves in the story as we open up our second uh, uh, lesson today in, in the doubt series. I pray that we would um, really invest our, our minds and our ears and our hearts this morning in the message. I, I pray over pastor that uh, the words that you would have for him to say, it would just come out uh, uh, easily and, and, and they, would, they would strike our hearts this morning. I pray that you would really um, move us and push us to, to be challenged, to grow more with you and to grow in our love for you and others as well. I pray this morning that you would bless our offering. Father, that you would, uh, as Jeremy said, send that out, increase our reach as a, as a church family. So it's not just in our church, but it's international and it's in our communities. I pray that, that we would be good stewards of that money. And I pray that this morning we would give sacrificially, but joyfully and cheerfully as well. Father, we know that you're going to bless us. We know that you're going to bless this service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Like I said, last week we started our series on doubt. This week we continue that. We're going into it next week as well. So we're in the middle of a really great series. I'm going to ask Pastor Harold to come up uh, and continue that for us. All right, let's go. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. Great to have new friends sitting here in our living room and uh, joining us at, at our little watch party here out in uh, the middle of nowhere in Justin and North Lake area. Uh, let me just pick up on what you said, Jeremy, and uh, uh, Pastor, D- Pastor Dave is actually speaking next week on the third Doubt Sermon, and uh, it's going to be a great one. You're going to want to definitely be here next week to tune in, uh, ready to hear what he has to say. Uh, this series is important because it kind of it gets us right where we are kind of in the secret inner man inside a lot of things run around through your mind and heart that you don't say out loud for fear of what other people will think or say about you and that's why this series is important because at cornerstone we like to talk about things maybe that don't get talked about too much and to address before i dive right into the sermon let me just pick up where where pastor jeremy was uh, it is our intention right now to start on July 5th back in the building. Uh, it's not an official date yet. We want to hear one more round of announcements from Governor Abbott and uh, uh, the health department here in Tarrant County. Uh, this is what we've been waiting on now. We're getting close. Uh, we're ready to open, but we know there was a, a significant spike in Texas this week in number of cases reported. Um, the experts are saying they believe that might either be a little bit of that lot of gathering on Memorial Day or we're really testing more. There's a testing blitz happening in Texas right now. Uh, we're one of the uh, fastest, highest number of testing uh, states right now in the union. And so it may not be that it's spreading uh, in an uptick. It may just be that we're recording what's already happened uh, in, over the past few weeks by testing so many people. So let's see how that plays out the first of next week. We're hopeful by late, uh, mid to late this week, actually this week coming, that we would have really good guidance on what to do. The goal is first Sunday in July, which would be July the 5th. When we start back in the building, we'll start back one service only, 1030 in the morning. And uh, we plan to go full kids programs, full worship as of now. All right, don't let me say any more about that. Let me park that. Let's hear the guidance this week, and then we'll come out with a series of announcements later in the week uh, via social media, media, Facebook, email blast, text, all of this, et cetera. So you'll get it later this week, and you'll get the, the official guidance from the church. But we're on track now to at least see the light at the end of the tunnel where we can be back together uh, in, in that worship setting that's more familiar to us. Uh, I just want to pause and say, you know, a lot of times Christians are a little nervous about technology. I remember when we switched to online giving years ago, uh, it's more safe, it's more secure, it's nothing to be afraid of. And I'm really so thankful that technology like this has been available for a moment like this. Uh, it's allowed us to be able to gather as a church without gathering physically, which is a phenomenon that's unheard of throughout human history until this moment. So it's been our friend. It's allowed us to encourage our disciples overseas. I want to give a big shout out to the leaders of our church, not just the staff, but but deacons, elder type people in our church. Uh, 
Alan Smith was up early this morning talking to our disciples in India. That doesn't go unnoticed. That is a huge thing to encourage our, our disciples who are out on the front lines in faraway places. Big shout out to Alan. Thank you so much for encouraging our disciples. Right now, we probably have people watching from Nepal, India, all over America. We're glad to join you. Uh, to our disciples who are watching from maybe even Latin America, we love you guys. We can't wait to see you again. And, and as soon as travel opens, we'll be there to embrace you and to encourage you. And we appreciate what you're doing out there on your front lines for Jesus Christ. All right, let's get right to the message. Let's get to doubt number two this morning. Last week, we entertained the question, is there room for doubt in the Christian faith? And we really, that was the thesis that we talked through. Is it okay to say I have some doubts if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, obviously, if we go to the New Testament, we can find some answers to this question. Did the people in the New Testament have doubts? Did they express those doubts? How did Jesus respond if and when they expressed their doubts? Uh, did they Did they get Criticism for you, you're not allowed to doubt, stop it, quit it, or you're not a good Christian, or you're not a good person, how dare you express doubts? How did he respond to them? And uh, we'll deal with that a little more this morning. That's kind of the flavor of our, of our sermon this morning. This week, we want to focus on two primary things. One is the quality of the individuals who expressed doubt in the New Testament, the high caliber of person that is doubting. It's very important for you to see. It's not some uh, uh, third tier type of maybe I'm a believer, maybe I'm a not, kicking the tires, trying to figure out if I like Jesus. It's not like that. I'm talking about people very close to Jesus. Some of the best Christians recorded in history are these people expressing their doubts. Uh, so we're going to look at that for a few moments this morning. And the second thing we want to talk about is the remedies that help us resolve our doubts. Talked a little bit about that last week. I give you three more thoughts on that this week. And then Pastor David's really going to pull that thread more next week and try to give us more uh, ammo tools in the toolbox, more techniques, uh, more resources to help us move beyond our doubts to a stronger position of belief. So first this morning, let's deal with this. Those closest to Jesus express their doubts. It's important for all of us to know that it's the people that are the very closest to Christ. Well, that would be like Mary and Joseph and his family. It would be people like the 12 apostles themselves. It would be the disciples, which is more than the 12 apostles, it's both men and women. There's about a hundred or more of them at the end of, uh, at, at the resurrection moment that are, that are there in Jerusalem, that are close followers of Christ. Some of the doubts that are expressed in the New Testament come from those groups that are the very closest people to Jesus Christ. One man in particular, well, Peter pops to mind doubting on the sea and sinking in the waves, but he's not the subject. There's one guy in particular uh, who actually got the name Doubting Thomas, exactly, uh, because of his proclivity to doubt and pessimism. And so, proclivity, was that too big of a word? I'll, word. Tone, I'll word. tone it down a little bit with the, okay, so, but Thomas is the guy who over and over expresses doubt. All the while he's following Christ. He's one of the 12 apostles. You can't get any more inner circle here. I mean, he's the one there when Jesus is doing the miracles, breaking the bread in the upper room, praying in the garden. Thomas is there. All the while he's following Christ, I want to describe him this morning as a loyal pessimist. And when I use that phrase, I think about many Christians I have known. Loyal? Absolutely. Pessimists. They're very loyal, but the glass is always half full. Very loyal followers of Christ, but the sky is always falling. Very loyal followers of Christ, but everything's going wrong. 
Very loyal to Christ, sun never shines at my house. Very loyal to Christ. Oh, I'll probably get fired this week. Car will probably break down this week. Well, just waiting. I introduced Thomas as he is a believer, but he's a chronic pessimist. I mean, he just can't say anything positive ever. Are pictures popping into your mind of people you know right now? Can't say anything positive ever. And it's not that he doesn't believe, he's a believer. But that pessimism causes him to have doubts, or if you would, opens the door for all of these doubts to come flooding into his mind. Jesus has the disciples up in Galilee. Lazarus has died. They've got to go all the way across the country to visit Lazarus's family for, it's really the post-funeral, the funeral will happen before they can even get there. And Jesus makes a comment. And what I want you to see is the little snarky comments that keep happening from, from Thomas all along the way. So Jesus says in, in John chapter 11, Lazarus has died and, I, and I'm okay with it. You be okay with it. I'm glad for your sakes because I'm going to go do something for him that you all may become stronger believers, that you may believe. So let's go to Lazarus. Now watch the snarky comment. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. This is typical. This is typical Thomas now. Jesus says, hey, let's go. Let's go see Lazarus. He's died. Yeah, let's all go die with him. They'll probably kill us all when we get to Jerusalem. You know, that is Thomas. That's typical. And it's typical of so many Christians that I know. Uh, hey, let's go do this. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's go on a mission trip. Yeah, we'll probably all die in a plane crash. But let's go. See what's going to happen. You know, hey, let's step out and do something. Yeah, probably, but it probably won't work out very well. Just that negativity, that pessimism. And here's what I want to call your attention to this morning. We need to grow past our pessimism. If we hope to be effective for Jesus Christ in making disciples and advancing the kingdom that he has left us here to advance, uh, we are to have attractive lives. Now, I'm not talking about physical attractiveness. Now, I'm not saying you've got to be beautiful, although we have some beautiful people in our church. And uh, look around the room where you're at. Beautiful people everywhere. What I'm saying is it, it transcends physical beauty. Christ wants us to have beautiful lives. Loving people. Giving people. Hearts filled with peace. Optimistic people. Encouraging people. Uh, joyful, one of the key fruits of the Holy Spirit, joy bubbling up in our lives. That's who we're called to be. And a life like that is so attractive that it, it compels people to want to know what is happening in your life. What's up with the transformation? I, I, I knew you back when, and you were this pessimistic person or you were this other person. And now I'm seeing this joyful, hopeful, optimistic person that's what being a follower of Christ is all about. But if you're still mired in this quagmire of negativity, constantly pessimistic about everything, it really hinders your ability to reflect Christ to this world. David, you like the angled mirrors analogy that God left us here to be images of him, reflecting him to the world and praise back to God. How are we going to reflect Christ to the world if we're just negative grumps? That's not who Jesus is. And, it, and it's, it's disservice to Christ for his people to be pessimists constantly. And I know what you're thinking. I can hear some of the thoughts in your mind right now. I can feel them. But pastor, that's just the way I am. That's just who I am. Exactly. And that's why Christ came to transform you, because who we are as uh, sinners and even as baby Christians is not who we're destined to be. He wants to transform us to something else. And it's just an excuse. It's just a cop out. Say, well, that's the way I'm wired. OK, well, let's rewire you by the inner working of the Holy Spirit in your life to be more like Jesus Christ, who was not a pessimist. He was the 
eternal, ultimate optimist telling you that even facing death, it's all going to work out. Listen, it's nothing but good is coming for you who are followers of Christ. Now, I think every believer struggles with moments of doubt. Now, this is where I want to be very transparent with all, everyone listening. I know you have moments of doubt, but what you don't know is everyone has moments of doubt. I know you have moments of doubt, but did you know the pastoral staff has moments of doubt? This is not you as a, a broken Christian. This is normal to all of Christianity. Those closest to Jesus had doubts. And that's what's important for you to know. So God does something wonderful for us. God creates a community of believers that we fellowship in. And in that community of believers, God always seems to put a wonderful person in that community of believers who's not afraid to ask the questions that we're all thinking. In other words, some of us are more reserved and there's no way I'm going to express that I have doubts. But God tends to put somebody in the room who's not afraid to raise their hand and say, you know what? I don't understand what you're saying. I don't get it. Please explain that. No, that's not what I under, that's not my, where I'm at at all. Lord, make this clear to me. Help me overcome my doubts. And Thomas is the one person in the classroom who's not afraid to raise his hand and look like an idiot. He's just not afraid to do that. Now he may be a pessimist and he may have got the moniker doubting Thomas, but praise God for Thomas because he's the one guy in the room you can count on to be real and say, I don't understand what you're talking about, Jesus. Can you please explain that to me because I'm not getting it. Everybody else here may be getting it, but I'm not getting it. So please make it clear to me. And you know what happens when Thomas does that? Everybody else in the room is like, thank God. Thank God he's asking the question because I didn't understand either, but I wasn't going to raise my hand and say anything. So thank you, Thomas, for being the focal point. And yeah, you get called Doubting Thomas, but we were all doubting. You're just the only one who was honest and transparent about your doubts. In John chapter 14, Jesus begins to tell them, he starts this discourse, John 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, as he runs to the cross now. John 14, I'm going away. John 15, abide in me, vine and branches chapter. John 16, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. John 17, I'm praying for my disciples. Boom, Calvary's coming. So as Jesus gives that final night of discourse, these whole chapters in John, John 14, Jesus starts talking like this. Um, I'm leaving. I'm going to go prepare a place in my father's house for you. And as he starts using this language, they start freaking out a little bit inside. Where is he going? Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't come right now, but you can come later. And where I go, you know. And the way, you know. And when Jesus starts saying, you know where I'm going and you know how I'm getting there, Thomas is like, he gets that look in his eye. He's like, I don't know where you're going. I don't know how, you, are you taking a bus? Did they invent Uber? How are, you, how are you going? Where are Thomas didn't have a clue what Jesus was talking about. And uh, Jesus is talking about, I'm going into heaven uh, to the next thing that I have. They didn't get it at all. And it's not just that Thomas didn't get it. Nobody in the room got it. But Thomas had the courage to say, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, John 14, 5. Uh, excuse me, Lord. See my hand. Lord. We do not know. Notice how he uses the we because he knows everybody in the room's in the same boat as him. They just won't speak up. Lord, we do not know where you are going. Are you going to Greece? A little vacation in Italy? Why can't we come with you? We don't know where you're going. And how are you going to go? Uh, I think all the other disciples in that moment said, yes, thank you. And we're all waiting to hear what Jesus is going to say right now. John 14, 6, next verse. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. This is one of the most famous verses in your Bible. I have traveled the world and I have seen this chiseled into the front of the most beautiful church in Budapest, Hungary. And the way, the truth, and the life. 
in giant letters chiseled into the granite above the cathedral in downtown Budapest. One of the most precious verses to believers about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven, the only begotten of the Father, the one who gave his life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am life, both physical and eternal life. I am the giver of life. We have this beautiful teaching in our Bible because someone had a doubt and asked a question. This is the point I want to make to you right now. Some of the most precious teaching verses in our Bible have come by way of someone having a, a doubt moment, raising a hand and saying, Lord, clarity, please. And then flows this beautiful teaching moment out of the doubt. Uh, I really appreciate Thomas for this. Now, let me fast forward. Jesus crucified. He's, he's buried. The disciples' world's turned upside down. The apostles are completely hopeless, if you would. I mean, they're just demoralized because of what has happened. And Thomas thought the crucifixion was the end. The, all he can hear are angry shouts of a mob rioting, crucify him, crucify. All he can see is the blood and the cross and the grave. And he's like, oh my goodness, this ended horribly wrong. This is not what I thought would happen. I thought Jesus would be sitting on that throne and instead he's buried in that tomb. And all of that disappointment, because he didn't understand, because he didn't understand what was happening, all of that disappointment opened a double wide French door for doubt to pour into his life. And, and it's the same in our lives. Life piles on sometimes. And when you're disappointed, it opens the door to discouragement, which opens the door to doubt. And then these doubts come in and you're like, does God even love me? Does he even hear my prayers? Does he even care? Does God even see what I'm going through right now? All of those statements are responses to discouragement and disappointment piling into our lives. But three days later on Sunday morning, we know everything's about to change. So, on the Resurrection Sunday, we know that Jesus appeared to his disciples first in the morning to Mary. She's the first person commissioned to go preach the gospel. Go tell the world that Christ, go tell the disciples first. You go preach to the men that the Christ has risen from the dead and tell them I'll meet with them later today. And it happened that Sunday evening when he actually met with all of the apostles together in, in the upper room Uh on Sunday evening, Resurrection Sunday evening, they were all gathered together. John 20, verse 24. Let me read it to you. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them. Everybody gathers for discipleship group. Everybody comes together in, in small group. And there's only one person missing and it's the guy who's the vocalist about the doubt. He was not there when Jesus appeared. Now, I just want you to think about how Jesus' appearance affected all the people in the room. Totally wiped away every doubt and discouragement and disappointment they had. And how Thomas not being in the room lived with eight more days of misery, not because... There wasn't an opportunity to have a solution. He removed himself from his small group. And when he did, the door was open for discouragement just to stay a little longer. Now, let me extrapolate that to a modern context. Meeting with the church is a big deal to your faith and to your spiritual formation as a Christian. Uh from time to time, we, as we are ministering to people, we hear people say, well, I love God, but, you know, I'm not too big on, you know, church and community. And I, Okay, I know I'm talking to a spiritual infant when I have that conversation because Christ's plan for your spiritual formation has to do with community. Uh, and, and it's more than the corporate worship. The corporate worship, you, you, it's hard to get real personal. It's hard for you to have a talking moment in a setting where hundreds of people are coming together to worship. It's hard for you to connect intimately and make friends in that scenario. So 
we do at Cornerstone, what they did in the New Testament, we create a small group environment where you can connect to people in a real genuine and intimate way and have a spiritual formation plan through that small group. Uh, let's see if I can say it another way and, 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 and kind of bring it to, to a head here. Having other believers influence your life is God's plan for your spiritual growth. It is how he transforms you. And being on your own, living in isolation from other disciples is absolutely detrimental to your spiritual growth. You need to constantly remind yourself, we are stronger together. We are stronger together. I am stronger as a Christian when I'm in community with other Christians. Any Christian isolated by themselves always ends up in discouragement and doubt. It's the way it always ends. And when you get hurt, when you get disappointed, one of the natural responses is isolate, pull away. I'm hurt. Just leave me alone. I just want to, I just want to be hurt for now. And I want to be isolated when that is the exact opposite of what will solve the problem. Now, Thomas believed in Jesus 100%, but disappointment led him to doubt. Let me read part of John 20, 25. So the other disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. Thomas is like, it's all over. It's done. He's dead. We'll never see him again. No, we've seen the Lord. We just had dinner with him Sunday night. He, he came to small group. I was reciting my memory verse. And when I was saying, you know, if we confess our sin, but Jesus showed up right in the room as I was, we were doing our memory verse time. And then we had fellowship. He was just there. He enjoyed the quiche. It was nice. And uh, they're telling Thomas this. And Thomas is like, you guys are crazy. He's still a pessimist. He, he's saying to them, you guys are delusional. You, you want it to be true so bad that you guys are imagining things now. So Thomas is faced with a choice. He can either believe truth, he can accept truth from the other disciples. After all, 10 eyewitnesses have all given the same report. This is the dream scenario of any trial attorney. Give any trial attorney 10 eyewitnesses who can be deposed and say the exact same set of details. It's a dream scenario that would stand in any court of law in the United States as absolute truth. Ten eyewitnesses who saw the exact same thing. But Thomas wouldn't believe them. He remains a, a pessimist. So last week we talked about uh, how unbelief at times will set evidentiary standards which are unreasonable. I will believe you're real Jesus if you make me win the lotto this week. You know, I will believe you. And then we set some ridiculous standard, uh, which God is not obligated to meet, by the way. So Thomas does a similar thing right now. He's just shooting off his mouth. John 20, 25. Listen, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, and unless I can place my finger in the mark of the nail, in the hole, and unless I can put my hand, boink, in his side. Now, who says that? Who's going to put their hand inside somebody's guts and say, then I'll believe it's the risen Christ. I mean, if it, it, he's definitely boys right here for sure. Put my finger in the hole through your wrist and let's see, wiggle out the other side. Unless I can do that. Now, Thomas isn't really sincere in all of this. He's over exaggerated. He's over, you know, it's a lot of bravado here. And it's like boys talking in a room. But he still doesn't believe Christ is risen. But what's so funny to me is God is listening. Now, if you ever doubt that God is listening and watching your life, he's listening. And you know he's listening because Jesus is about to show up a week later just for Thomas. And when Jesus shows up a week later, he's going to recite Thomas's words back to him. Here we go. John 20, verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Here's our opportunity. 
Although the doors were locked, Jesus came right through the wall and stood among them and said, What's up, guys? Peace be unto you. Then he said, Thomas? Now just, he appeared for Thomas now. I'm here. How you doing, guys? Thomas, come here. And watch what Jesus says. Put your finger See my hands? Put out your hand, Thomas. Place it in my side. Now, we don't know if he did or not. I don't think he did. I think when presented with the opportunity to thrust your hand into the body cavity of a resurrected Christ, you probably say, oh, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you. I believe. Because here are the words of Thomas. Jesus says to him, Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. You know what? The way I read that is so beautiful because what I read is a loving Christ who wants Thomas on mission and no longer wants him to be a doubter or a pessimist even. And he's saying, Thomas, I love you so much. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get you transformed. Whatever it takes. You think I want somebody thrusting their dirty fingers into my body? No. But if that's what it takes to get you fixed, Thomas, let her rip. Put your hand into my side. Now, I know it's weird and it's gross, but it worked. And I don't think Thomas did. We don't really have a record. Thomas responds with these words. My Lord and my God. My Lord, which means I'll do whatever you ask me to do, and my God. Sometimes people will say, well, Jesus never called himself God in those terms. Well, Thomas is right here at his feet now calling him God, recognizing really what has happened, that Jesus was right all along. He is going away. He is risen from the dead. He's in a physical glorified body. He's about to go back into heaven. And Thomas says, these words could be translated this way. Everything's true. Everything you told us is 100% true. My Lord and my God, forgive me for being so dense. I'm so sorry. I've got it together now. And so let me help all of us now. You're thinking, Pastor, sometimes I have doubts. I'm not sure that I'm a very good Christian. Pastor, sometimes I have doubts. I'm not sure what God can do with me. I don't think I'm capable of very much spiritually. God can't use me because I have doubts from time to time. And what I want to say to everyone listening this morning is you've got it backwards. You're precisely the type of person that God uses. And God's going to transform you by helping you come past pessimism into optimism. He's going to transform you to make you whatever that weak spot, that doubting spot is. He's going to prove himself to be true in your life. And he's going to change you. And when you come past that, you are 100% the very person that God is going to use to transform your community for Jesus Christ. You're going to be a champion of the kingdom. You're going to be a disciple maker. Not because you didn't have any doubts, but because you had some and you were honest about them and God took you through them to a place of strong belief. God has an incredible track record of transforming doubters into devoted believers that join the ranks and the mission of making disciples. Thomas was so convinced. I, we don't talk often about Thomas's life story, and let me just condense it into a few sentences. Thomas was so convinced and so dedicated after this moment, he gave his life 100% to the mission of making disciples and advancing the kingdom of God. While Paul, we know all about because he went to Europe and it really affects our history here. Some of the disciples went to Africa. Thomas is one that went east. He went to ultimately India. And Thomas is really the first powerful gospel voice to reach uh the Indian subcontinent for Jesus Christ traveled all the way down to the tip of the subcontinent to what is the modern day Chennai, 
where eventually, after ministering there and making disciples, the pagans rose up against Thomas and killed him. His grave is in Chennai, India today. And I'm not optimistic or hoping that anybody would have to lay down their life. But I want to say this to you. What would make Thomas willing to lay down his life? No one lays down their life for a lie. No one lays down their life for something they're not sure about. Well, I think maybe Jesus might be the Messiah. That kind of attitude doesn't get you a martyr. A martyr's crown. What got Thomas martyred was he 100% believed that Jesus was the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the risen Christ. And he began to preach that message because he believed it 100%. Let me fast forward now. There's another man very close to Jesus who had doubts. His name is John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist seems to be rock solid until the very end of his life. Whereas some people have doubts early and you see them overcome. John's solid all the way to the end. And it's in that moment facing death where John wavered a little bit just for a minute. Nice recovery. Let, let me tell you John's story real, real quick. If you were to ask Jesus Christ, who's the greatest guy you know? In your circle of friends, people you know, who's like the most upstanding, awesome guy? Jesus was almost presented with that. And Jesus said, the greatest guy is John the Baptist. Listen, he is a prince of a man. And there has not been a greater man born among women than John the Baptist. And John was a prophet, an Old Testament style prophet, really the last of the prophets coming into the New Testament. And uh, to say he's the greatest of, of guys you have to realize what elite company this is. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. I mean, these are some prince, princely guys, Christian statesmen. Jesus said, John is this caliber of man. There's no one greater than John. But in the final hours of John's life, he had been speaking against the immorality of the king. It got him locked up in prison. And while he's sitting in prison, he got discouraged. Let me say it to you in American terms. When John got thrown in prison, he entered into a state of depression. A heavy state of depression settled into the heart of John while he's sitting in prison. And I think that's fair that any of us would, would feel that. I mean, you've been trying to live right. You've been trying to preach the kingdom of God. I mean, you baptized Jesus Christ. I've been trying to do what's right. I've been trying to please God. Now look. I'm in here with the rats and the cockroaches in this stinking prison, and they're probably going to take my head off any day or stone me or something, you know. And you would understand why someone would be depressed. And that discouragement and depression settled into him. And when it did, it opened those doors. And here come the doubts. You see, it's these circumstances that trigger the doubts. It's not that John's a bad guy or an inferior guy or an unbelieving guy. He's a prince of a guy. He's a solid believer. But events can open doors as triggers to let the doubts come in. So while John's sitting in there on death row, his disciples, John's disciples, are ministering to him and bringing him food, bringing him a newspaper, coming and pray with him and encourage him. And one day the disciples come into the prison. Let me read Luke 7, 20. And when the men had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you. So when the disciples came to visit Jesus, uh, John in prison, John said, I just, I'm not sure Jesus is the Messiah. I want to have, I'm facing death now and I want to be sure. The door's open for doubt here. I want to be sure. Listen, this is the same guy who said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I see heaven open and the Holy Spirit descending. I hear the voice of God. That's same John. But now he's discouraged and he's locked up in prison. So he tells his disciples, run to Jesus, find him up there in Galilee and ask him a question and bring me the answer. They said, okay, what's the question? Are you the son of God? <laughs> he's having doubts. He's discouraged. And so the disciples come to Jesus, verse 20. They said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, here's basically what Jesus said to the messengers. 
Guys, sit down right here. Watch what's about to happen. Just hang with me for the afternoon. You'll have your answer, and then you can run it back down to John, okay? Just hang right here for a minute, and here's what happened. In that hour, Jesus healed many people of their diseases, of their plagues, and of their evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered now to the messengers of John, Go and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind are receiving their sight, the lame are walking, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf are hearing, the dead are raised to life, and the poor have the good news preached to them. When John hears that, he'll know that I am the Son of God. I'm the he put his faith in the right person. But John had a moment of doubt. The doubt was answered with solid evidence. The blind see, the dead are raised to life. I am the son of God. John, dispel the doubts now. I'm sorry you're discouraged and I'm sorry it's going to end this way for you, but I'll see you on the other side shortly. Hang on, man. You backed the right candidate, okay? And John's doubts were conquered. He went into the next life with a great victory. There's one more guy I want to point out. We don't even know his name, so I've just called him a father. Uh, I wish I knew his name, but there's many awesome people who make appearances in the scripture whose names we don't know. The Syrophoenician woman. How hard would it have just been to put Sally in the Bible? I mean, but for some reason, uh, we weren't supposed to know their names, but we know their story. And here is one. It's a father. As we near Father's Day, I'm always uh, disappointed when I'm watching a movie or a TV show or something and they portray, uh, Hollywood portrays fathers as like just bumbling morons, you know what I'm saying, who can't, who can't do anything. And I'm always a little discouraged about that because that's not my vision of fatherhood. It's not who my father was. And I hope it's not who your father was. You may not have had a great father. I hope you did. But praise God if your father was a loving father and a protective father and a providing father and a strong father and an intelligent father. And even if you had a bad father, either way, you should strive to be a good father, a good leader in your family. If you had a bad father, okay, break the destructive patterns that were modeled for you and strive to be the father you always wanted your father to be. Either way, in Mark 9, you're presented with an awesome father. And I know he's an awesome father because the father comes to Jesus for help, even though he's nameless. His actions are wonderful because he has such concern for his child. He thinks his child is demon-possessed. He knows his child has some type of serious issue. He had already taken his child other places for help. We know, for example, he went to the disciples because it comes out in the story. I already took my son to your disciples. They can't help him. They can't solve this issue. They can't cast out the demons if that's truly what it is. So the father comes to Jesus. Let me read Mark 9, 21. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire. The demons are trying to kill my son. How's that for a paraphrase? The demons cast my son into the fire. The demons cast my son into the water to drown him. But if you can do anything, please have compassion on us and help us. Notice the us pronoun, not just help my son. You know what happens to a family member happens to all of us. When a family member suffers, we are all feeling it. In a church family, this is the way it should be as well. Somebody suffers, the New Testament says we all suffer with them. If somebody rejoices, we all are rejoicing together with them. The father says to Jesus, please have compassion and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, just want that to hang for a minute. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, we carefully lay out what's happening. The man comes to Jesus and says, if you can help us, Jesus, please show compassion and help us. Jesus turns the conversation around and says, no, sir, if you can believe, then I can help you. 
Now, see, we're coming to Jesus all the time. Jesus, don't you see the mess I'm in? If you can... We need to understand God's... We're not always waiting on God. God's waiting on us. God already knows what you're going to ask for before you ask for it. He still wants you to ask, and he still wants the conversation, and he still wants the interaction according to the New Testament. We're saying, God... And I just want to see a sassy Jesus sitting on the throne saying, no, I'm waiting on you. You're not waiting on me. I'm waiting on you to exercise something. And the moment you do, I'm there. And so maybe this can affect the way we pray even this week. When we're saying, oh, Lord, how long are you going to wait? Maybe we need to pray this week, Lord, I'm sorry that I've been blaming you for a lack of change in my life. Lord, I'm ready to step up and step out on faith, knowing that you can do all things for those who believe. Now, I want to ask you, why is this story in the Bible? Please ask yourself this as you're reading your New Testament. Why put a story in the Bible of a nameless father? You don't even bother to tell us his name. A few little verses. Why in the world, Mark, would you put this of all stories and listen, there, there are a thousand, there are 10,000 stories like this that didn't even make the Bible. John says this. He said, if we wrote down everything that happened, the books wouldn't contain them. So you have to ask yourself, Mark, why in the world did you put this little story in your gospel? Did you do it just to mock a father who was powerless to help his son? I don't think that's what Mark was doing, surely. Mark, why did you put this in the New Testament? Well, maybe he put it in there, like the other Bible writers put some of these stories in there, to show you that when Jesus walked the earth, all of the demonic forces of darkness were enraged against Jesus Christ. I mean, when Jesus goes to the synagogue, demons and people are crying out. When Jesus goes through the streets, people are foaming at the mouth and demons throwing kids into the fire. And what's this upheaval of satanic activity? It's all pointed at Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Something big is happening when Jesus is walking the earth. And that could be one reason this is here, to show us that there are dark powers out there that not only want to destroy Jesus, but they want to destroy those who are intended to be his images. This should be your takeaway from Genesis 3. Satan hates God, and he's going to take it out on you. Because you were intended to rule and reign with Jesus as living images in the temple of God. So who better to destroy and get back at God than destroy God's images, destroy God's children. So I think that's part of the reason this story is in the Bible, to show us that the dark powers want to destroy us and derail anything that has to do with the kingdom of God. But more than that, I think the story is put into the Bible because of the recorded statement of the father when the father makes this one statement the father has in some supernatural yet human way connected every one of us with one sentence i mean it's a genius sentence that cuts right to the heart where all of us are living right now and when I read this, every time I am pierced by the Father's words. Jesus, help me. Jesus says, no. How about you putting some belief out there in faith? And, and I'll step up. It's like throwing a softball over the middle of the plate. I'll knock it out of the park. And then the Father says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Do you realize that sentence connects every one of us? If I could pull back the curtain that shrouds every one of our hearts and look deep inside, here's what's inside of every one of our hearts. Jesus, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I'm talking to a group of awesome believers this morning who struggle with doubt. Is that not who we are? And the Father nailed it with this sentence. Listen, when you pray, you ought to use this father's sentence in your prayers sometimes. Pray the word of God back to, to God and say, God, I'm just thinking about Mark chapter 9 and that nameless father. He's so me. 
That's so me. Lord, I do believe. Here's what we're really saying, but my faith is weak, isn't it? It's small. I do believe, but I don't believe the way as strongly as I should. My faith is small. It's there. Needs to be developed a little more. Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And seeing how Jesus responds to this man gives us understanding how God responds to us. So what did Jesus do for the man? Did he say, well, go away until you grow up a little bit and then come back and I'll help you when your faith is a little more mature? No, Jesus steps right in now. Cast the demons out of the child. Restores a family unit to harmony and peace and happiness and joy. And that gives you some indication how God would deal with you if you came to him in openness and honesty and said, God, I do believe this thing I'm praying for. I know you can do this. Yeah, but I do struggle with unbelief. God help my unbelief. I think you would see God respond to you with a lot of kindness and a lot of grace and a lot of mercy. Let me let me wrap this sermon up this morning by giving you some solutions, three remedies for our doubt. Let me run through these real quick. Three things that will help you this week. Uh, the first is meditate on scripture. One of the keys to overcoming doubt is to meditate upon the word of God. God speaks through his word. Uh, you are unlikely to hear audible voices booming down at you. Uh, instead, the writer of Hebrews says, God spoke at different times in different ways, but in this time, this last time, last period of human history, he's spoken through the Son, through the Word. So God speaks through his Word. If you want to hear a word from God, if you want God to speak to you, just open his Word and let it flow. Let it flow. And again, I wouldn't start in Leviticus. I wouldn't start with a genealogy. You know, it's not all the same. But open the New Testament and find where Jesus, listen, if nothing else, go to get your words of Christ in red Bible and flip open to the Gospels and start reading those red words. And let the teachings of Jesus flow into your heart because the real, the real battle is for your mind. Satan knows that an empty mind is much easier to discourage than a mind that is filled with the words of Jesus Christ. So Satan fills that vacuum in an empty mind with all the wrong thoughts and all the wrong voices. But if you're open to letting the word of God come in, you're going to win the battle for control of your mind. And that's where the battle is really being fought. Whoever's controlling this is ultimately controlling you. Is, is God and his word going to control your thoughts or is the devil and his lies going to control your thoughts? We'll determine whether you're going to live a life filled with peace or a life filled with anger or anxiety. So engaging with the Bible will put the right thoughts into your mind and will ultimately determine your success or failure as a Christian. The second one is to walk with Christ. God transforms us through a relationship with him. Now, again, relationship has many definitions, many parts. Relationship is time. It is communion. It is fellowship. It is communication, conversation. It, it, it is intimacy. That's what relationship is. And through a relationship with God, those doubts are going to dissolve because when you have a relationship with God, transformation begins to happen to your life. You begin to think different, you begin to speak different, you begin to act different, you begin to have different motives. Everything becomes different when you're in a relationship with God. Now, not all at once, but slowly over time. And as you see that transformation happening in your life, that is so encouraging because it's proof there is a God and that he is, he is working in you and nothing erases doubt like a relationship-based in love. The third one, the last one is a commitment to church community. We saw this with Thomas and it's true of us also. God meets with his followers. Now this is a Bible promise where two or three are gathered in my name. Most of you know that where there am I in the midst of them. God promised to meet with his followers. So doubts dissolve when we gather together in the name of Jesus. If you're in someone's living room right now, uh, seated in couches and chairs or on the carpet or whatever with a group of Christians, Jesus has promised to meet with you there. 
He's promised together where people are gathering in his name and doubts dissolve when I gather in the name of Jesus. Conversely, the more isolated you are from Christian community, the more susceptible you are to doubt. When you say, oh, I've been hurt, I'm just going to isolate. I, I, I just want to be alone. I just want to be by myself. I, I don't want to be around anybody. You're such an easy prey for Satan in that moment. It's when we're in community that you're protected and the doubts are erased. It's in the fellowship of the church that your faith is strengthened. A lot of times people say, I don't see the point for church. Listen, that's the only way you're going to get strong. It's the only way you're going to be transformed. It's the only way you're going to be spiritually formed. So let me close with a couple of promises. Here's what I promise to you. At Cornerstone, you will not find a group of pessimistic critics. You're not going to gather together and they're all going to be pessimists with fingers pointed, judging you. That's not who the Cornerstone family is. If you make a commitment to community at Cornerstone, you will not be surrounded by critics and pessimists. Instead, you will be surrounded by optimistic disciple makers who are praying for you, cheering for you, working for your spiritual transformation to be everything you're destined to be as a follower of Jesus Christ. We are committed to your care. At Cornerstone, we are committed to your spiritual formation. You may have doubts. That's okay. We're going to work through them together. And not only will your doubts disappear, but you're going to gain confidence to join the mission, which according to Jesus is your destiny. Go and make disciples of all nations. If you're not officially a part of our church family, uh, Jeremy, give, give me a text line right here, if you would, where people can text in. Uh, if you're not officially a part of our family and you're ready to take that step and say, hey, I, even though we're not back in the building, I want this thing formalized. I want to get on the path of being a part of this church family. Go ahead and text us and uh, Pastor Jeremy will get your text and you can tell him, I want to be an official part of this church. This is the community I want. This, what you've talked about today, building up one another is what I'm all about. And that's what I long for. We will do our very best to see to your growth and spiritual formation. Just reach out to us. We'll put you on the pathway to membership, show you how to, how, how the, what steps look like and how to fulfill that. If you're listening to the message today and you're like, you know, I've had so many doubts, but they're being erased right now. And I've never put my faith in Jesus Christ. Why not do that today? It's a beautiful phrase in, in the Bible that says, behold, today is the day of salvation. If you know you're ready for that step, let's take it together this morning. Call out to the Savior this morning and say, I'm going to put my faith in you. And I want to begin a new life in Christ with you as my Lord and Savior. I want to be a believer. Let's pray together and do that this morning. I'll lead you in a simple prayer. My words aren't magic. It's really you're expressing your belief from your heart that really initiates your relationship with Jesus Christ. He's ready. You're not waiting on him. He's waiting on you to take that step. If you're ready to do that, let's pray together right now. Pray like this. Dear God, I reach out to you the best way I know how this morning. I know that I'm a sinner and I confess that. This morning, I want you to know that I believe, Jesus, you are the Son of God who came to this earth and lived a perfect life, who died on the cross in my place as my substitute. I'm the one that deserved that, not you. But you laid down your life for me. I believe you were buried and rose again the third day. Everything the Bible says you are, I believe you are. Now, I believe now you are the risen, living Savior. This morning, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Wash me and cleanse me. Adopt me into your family and make me a citizen of your kingdom. I accept you. And I put my trust in you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for loving me. And thank you for saving me today. In Jesus' name, amen.
If you prayed that prayer, reach out to us and let us know. We'd love to get you a Bible. And we'd love to give you some encouragement and prayer as well. In the watch groups this morning, you have a few discussion questions. So if you're in a watch group this morning, I'm going to let you go ahead and tune out right now and go to discussion questions and you guys can dismiss yourselves when that's done. If you're alone this morning, uh, I want to just say a brief prayer for you. And then we'll talk to you later this week with some upcoming announcements. Okay, kids stuff will be available for you a little bit later and let your kids go and enjoy what we have for them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for some time around the word of God. Lord, bless everyone who is listening with an open heart this morning. And God, I pray that you would manifest yourself to them. Lord, that their faith would be real as never before. Lord, that they would step out by faith. And Lord, as we cry out to you, Lord, we do believe. Lord, this is our heartfelt prayer. We do believe. But at the same time, Lord, help our unbelief. Lord, we know we should be stronger in faith and help that to grow over time. Lord, we love you and we're thankful for all that you're doing in our lives. Keep us healthy. Keep us safe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. I'll see you guys later in the week.